And welcome to episode 879 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by the Play Index at Baseball Reference and our Patreon supporters. I'm Sam Miller, along with Ben Lindbergh of 538. Hey, Ben, how are you? All right. All right. Uh, so straight to the baseball. Are we going to do any good wife banter? Well, that's what that, that was a reference to that. That was a reference to the fact that you were going to want to talk about good wife. Yeah, I feel like I've been slapped by a lawyer in a dimly lit hallway, but we could talk about it at the end of the episode so that people who are not interested in our good wife banter don't have to hear it. We could make this the end of the episode. <laughs> we could. I know you'd like to. All right. Yeah, let's talk about some baseball and then we'll we'll get to good wife at the end. All right. Why don't you start? Okay. Well, tell me what your topic is. Probably if we don't, we, we might fill the room with banter, in which case my topic will move to tomorrow. But if, uh-huh. we, uh, if we can't banter our way through this, it will be Mike Trout trade proposals. Okay. Well, we should talk a little bit about Bartolo and Bryce, perhaps. I don't know if you have anything to say about Bartolo Colon. Do you have any observations other than uh, sheer joy and awe? Well, in fact, I I think that there isn't anything interesting about Bartolo Colon's sort of late career joyousness uh, to, to, to analyze. I find everything that Bartolo Colon does to bring me joy but more than that, I find joy in the fact that everybody else finds joy. It, there's just something so unexpected and, about it, about Bartolo Colon, this guy. I mean, imagine 10 years ago telling you, uh, you know, that Bartolo Colon would be the most popular player in baseball. Yeah. That he would... was it, five years ago when he was getting experimental treatments and was out of baseball and <laughs> seemed like he wouldn't be back? And now he is a, a folk hero. Yeah, no, I know. I mean, that that's the, there's two things. One is uh, that make it great. One is just that people are happy. I like I like it when people are happy, uh, mm-hmm. and there doesn't seem to be anything about Bartolo Colon that doesn't make people happy these days. And so I like that. But I also just like that Bartolo Colon is such an unexpected person to be this figure. I mean, for one thing, he was suspended for PEDs <laughs> not <laughs> yeah. long ago. Uh-huh. And yet nobody cares. And I don't know what that I mean, I, you know, I don't think people should do PEDs. I I don't think it's like a noble thing to do or anything. And I would I think it's bad for the sport that people do. Uh, and so I don't know why I like it that Bartolo Colon is so popular. But mm-hmm. I I just like I don't know. I like this completely uncynical view of a baseball player that everybody has agreed upon uh, with Bartolo Colon. I like that he doesn't you know, he doesn't do anything quite right that well he doesn't do anything quite predictably he doesn't do he, he doesn't look like a ball player mm-hmm. he he's uh, he's also a guy who 10 years ago i didn't like because he won the cy young over johan santana even though santana was like immeasurably better than him and so cologne was this uh, to some degree symbol of bad baseball analysis and and now here he is 10 years and he was you know he was part of that he he was the 
the return on the worst trade in history. Mm-hmm. And all of that is just gone. It's just, he's just this, well, I've mentioned, I've, I'm, I think I've used, I've mentioned this line before, but he is proof of that old saying that, that, uh, all politicians, prostitutes, and buildings yes. become, become respectable if they live long yeah, enough. The Chinatown line. Exactly. Yeah. And so this is, this is like, this is hope for us all. Like, I mean, okay, maybe that's what this is, is that we're all getting older and that's, that's hard to deal with. Uh, you know, I'm scared to get old. I, you know, I've talked about my toe, right? I don't think you've talked about your toe. I have definitely about, uh, seven years ago, I was playing, um, you know, like church league soccer and uh, my foot connected with another guy's foot and he injured my toe. And so I, 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 the story that I told about this toe is, is two things. There's two things that I took from this story. One is I go to the doctor and she like gives an x-ray and she's like, yep, that toe's really messed up. And I look at her like, great. Okay. So what now? And she's like, nothing. Like you're just like, what? Oh, right. Like, why would we fix you? <laughs> yeah. You're, you're too old to rehab, yeah. too old to fix. Exactly. You're not making the Olympics. So we're just going to let this toe be. And um, two is that uh, that was that toe uh, experience was when I realized that I was not I was also not healing anymore. Like it used to be that uh, you could cut off an arm, but it would grow back if you were young enough. And mm-hmm. then you get to an age where you just quit healing. Nothing heals ever again. And so um, today I was running. I was sort of jogging into my uh, parents kitchen and uh, jumping up on the porch and they have a little puppy and the puppy's been under our feet for the last few weeks and so this puppy is like getting right under my feet as I'm turning a corner and I don't want to step on the puppy and I sort of contort myself to avoid the puppy and and I and I tumble I take a tumble and my toe is I swear rebroken and it I mean eight years ago I hurt this toe and it just might have been seven years ago and it just doesn't ever heal and these sorts of things really make me sad and nervous about what the next 30 years are going to be like. And Bartolo Colon is just this reminder that there are also good things about getting old. You know, the world becomes more patient with you, for one thing. And you get this sort of particular kind of wisdom to you and uh, calm. And um, and it's it's a nice place to be as well. I, I My guess is that, uh, in fact, while... Uh, the constant pain and lost hopes of of uh, of middle and old age uh, are on the surface and make you feel sad. In fact, I would guess that the older you get, the happier you are, uh, at least relative to anybody else who's uh, of uh, of self actualized age. And mm-hmm. so I'm uh, I'm sort of inspired by Bartolo Colon. Sometimes you talk about a certain site making you suspect that baseball is actually easy. This was something that you hoped to establish last summer when we had access to an actual baseball team, and you wanted to hit off some live pitching, and you once did take some BP off Sean Conroy. So does the sight of Bartolo Colon hitting a baseball 97 miles per hour at a projected distance of 365 feet make you question the athleticism of baseball players or the difficulty of the game? Well, it's it's another data point. I mean, it Uh doesn't... I don't think it changes anything. If I, fi- I figure if if you can put the bat on the ball at all as a pitcher, uh, you've already proven that it's not as hard as it looks. Yeah, it, it amazes me that pitchers can consistently do that. Yeah, and I guess if you swing as hard as Cologne does, and he is of course famous for 
swinging in an uncoordinated way, but certainly hard, hard enough to make his helmet fall off. Uh, sooner or later, we've talked probably before when we've talked about whether a, a normal person could hit a ball out in batting practice. If you swing hard enough and you have enough swings, eventually you'll connect by chance alone. So I don't want to minimize his achievement here, but uh, it was bound to happen given uh, enough swings. But yeah. Statistically, he has probably not taken a, enough swings for this to happen by chance. I wonder if Bartolo Colon is a. Like, if Bartolo Colon had never pitched, would you guess that he would have been signed as a position player? I don't yeah. know that much about his background, but. Well, he was, you know, he was a. He obviously had a strong arm, strong enough arm. Sure. He came from a baseball hotbed, mm-hmm. and uh, he was, uh, you know, a lithe young man. So probably yeah. he would have. And uh, maybe odds are pretty good that he he's you know he he's certainly the best hitter you and I have ever met, right? Have we met him? No, we haven't. But <laughs> if we were to meet him, best I mean, we've, guess we've met some pretty good hitters. <laughs> best guess we've actually met. So oh, that's true. You're right. Yeah. I've met Jason Giambi. We've met Mike Trout. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> best guess what would Bartolo Colon have hit in the Pacific Association? <laughs> I don't think he would have been good there. No. Well, okay. So let's see. Over the last five years, he's hit 077, 083, 112 in the majors. So that's a 195 OPS in the majors. Is it possible that he would be equally good <laughs> anywhere? <laughs> that he just, if as long as the pitchers are throwing reasonably like a professional pitcher, he would be equally unsuccessful. Like the extra, the extra movement or whatever it is that a major league pitcher has that a Pacific Association pitcher doesn't have maybe at, at his level of swinging it doesn't matter as much I don't know probably not it's hard to imagine him hitting well obviously he, he couldn't run even in the uh in the home run he did his usual carrying his bat down the first baseline which is wonderful maybe he'd be able to hit 150 there and what are the chances that the Managers and coaches of Major League Baseball will coordinate a Silver Slugger award for him this year. <laughs> I'd like to see that. It really, it honestly kind of makes me rethink my whole pro DH stance because I am generally pro DH, but then the very terribleness of pitcher hitting that makes me a pro DH person in the first place then makes the actually competent pitchers stand out so much that I enjoy that. So you get your occasional Madison Bumgarner and it almost makes the the struggles of every other pitcher worthwhile and then in addition to the rare competent pitcher which seems almost miraculous you have the very incompetent pitcher who does something competent one time and that in a way is even better so I don't know I mean are the weak outs and the automatic outs and the turning over the lineup over and over and over again does that outweigh the joy of Bartol Cologne hitting a home run and Madison Bumgarner hitting many home runs? I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm unambiguously pro DH. So, uh-huh. <laughs> I my position on the DH is if if they if the pitchers actually couldn't get a hit if they went over. I mean, if they if if routinely pitchers were coming up to the majors and retiring over 300, then yes, that would be a problem. But they hit fine. They're not good. But only relative to the very best baseball players in the world, they're perfectly good hitters. These are they're every time a hitter pitcher comes up to hit, he is a threat to get a hit. And the idea that they're uh, that they're an automatic out is just a fallacy. They get hits. I mean, who's to say that one in ten isn't enough? 
you know, just because Ted Williams got more. Of course, Ted Williams got more. He was the best. But these guys are threats to get hit every single to get hits every single time. And uh, they're actually like pretty good at it. So uh, so I need a better reason than it's boring to watch pitchers hit pitchers hitting. The fact that they're less likely to get a hit almost makes it to some degree sometimes more suspenseful. Like, you you know, pitcher falls behind 2-0 to another pitcher. I'm watching. Anyway. So what is your reason? You have one. For what? You said you're pro DH. Pro the opposite. Oh. <laughs> okay. Right. I, uh, that makes more sense. I just uh, sent you my favorite. I wrote, I've, written, I've written some pieces about Bartolo Colon hitting in my yeah. day, and I've just sent you my favorite. Please post it on the Facebook. <laughs> Do you I have a guess so. of what? Do you remember which one this I is? I remember. Yes, the the Bartolo Colon running to first base. Yeah, we had a Ron Darling had a hypothesis that Bartolo Colon had never touched first base, uh-huh. and uh, like even just even just running out of ground ball. Yeah. And I uh, I tested it. Mm-hmm. I think. By the way, the the reason that I can be happy that everybody is happy about Bartolo Colon is is summed up more than anything else in his interaction with Tyler Moore in this article. So read it just for for the Tyler Moore section. And okay. uh and I think that's why we like Bartolo. Should we talk about Bryce Harper? Sure. Walk me through this because I know that he walked a lot and that's about all I know. Yeah, he got on base almost all the time this weekend, but there was only one hit involved. So on Sunday he got on base all seven times, six six times via walk and one time via hit-by-pitch. I think uh, Bill Bayer at Hardball Talk did some play indexing, mm-hmm. and he couldn't find any results for batters who reached base without reaching on an error at least seven times without having an official at-bat in a game. So he might be the first person ever to do that. So he was intentionally walked a bunch of those times. And what, he's gone 12... Yeah, Rob Maines also did some play indexing, and okay. he found that nobody had ever had two consecutive games with at least three plate appearances and no actual Mm at-bats. And so it seems very unlikely that anybody has matched Bryce Harper's streak of 12 plate appearances without an at-bat. Yes. And so the Cubs, despite putting Bryce Harper on base over and over and over again, swept. Since we did a podcast on how great the Cubs have been last week, they have not lost. And in fact, they swept a really good team, the Washington Nationals. So after the game, Tanner Roark said that he was very, very surprised that the Cubs walked Harper so many times. He said, I think it's scared baseball, which I don't have a problem with. It it is kind of scared baseball, and it's totally reasonable to be scared of Bryce Harper. No, Tanner Roark has never, ever pitched around a guy. Yeah, right. You could call it respect baseball, or you could call it something else if if scared is too demeaning, but it is appropriate to be scared of the best hitter in the league. So the question, I suppose, is whether this makes sense, whether it makes sense to put Bryce Harper on every time. Of course, Ryan Zimmerman left 14 runners on base on Sunday, batting behind Bryce Harper, which was a major league record. So Zimmerman, of course, has not hit. He has a sub 300 on base and a not very above 300 slugging. And so this is sort of the age-old lineup protection thing in action. And the debate about lineup protection, it's it's always been the research has shown that it it can actually affect your production. It just might not make you worse. Being pitch around as Bryce Harper was this weekend just makes Bryce Harper kind of valuable. He's on base every time. 
And so it might uh, change the, the look of his stats, but it doesn't make him a less productive player necessarily, although it could be worse for the Nationals, possibly, if uh, the guy hitting behind him never gets a hit. Anyway, question is, I guess, whether Harper has reached the point that it makes sense to do this sort of thing. Joe Madden is not a crazy person, generally seems to have a reason for doing the things that he does. Cubs, pretty smart, pretty good at baseball, and they have decided not to pitch to Bryce Harper. And I think Bill also in that hardball talk post dredged up the old Barry Bonds, should you walk Barry Bonds calculator that uh, Tom Tango created way back when. And this is sort of relevant to something in our book because we sort of faced this decision last season with a a hitter named Matt Chavez in the Pacific Association. But what is your uh, initial reaction to walking Bryce Harper every single time? Well, obviously I don't begrudge Tanner Roark playing the game where you try to shame a team into doing something that's against its best interests. Yes. Uh, We had that happen as well. Yeah, has, has been alluded to. We um, I guess we could just say it, right? Yeah, it's been out a whole six days. Yeah, no. So I'll I'll t- so we had a first. I'm going to back up a little. I'm mm-hmm. actually kind of happy that the Cubs are doing this, just because somebody tweeted that we weren't true saber because our team. Oh, beyond the box score, oh, right. tweeted yeah. that we weren't true saber because our team led the Pacific Association in intentional walks, yes. and uh, it was this situation. There was this guy Matt Chavez who was, you know, 2004 Barry Bonds relative to a league in which, you know, nobody else was better than, like, you know, average Derek Lee. Like, he was just that far beyond everybody else. So eventually, and nobody walked him, and eventually we started walking him. And the uh, an opposing manager, uh, realizing that he had no defense against our intentional walks, brilliantly tr- started working our veteran shortstop to try to convince him that, it was shameful what we were doing that everybody's out here to try to get noticed. Yeah, uh, and, and that our by, manager. And that by, and, well, and our manager, but uh, he had a better relationship with the shortstop. So, uh, so he was trying to convince him that we, we, we owed it to the, to the player to let him hit. <laughs> that we, we owed it to the spirit of indie ball to let him, uh, to let him get some pitches. And at the very least, we could pitch around him, but we, it's shameful to intentionally walk him. And, um, I, there were times where I was, like where he would be the manager there was a game i don't know if you were at this game but there was a game where the manager uh the opposing manager was coaching third base and was talking to our shortstop about something and i actually went around the field and started yelling at him at, at our shortstop not to listen to him he's only telling you lies yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh that there's that he's he doesn't have your best interests at heart i mm-hmm. i remember saying which is weird is weird baseball smack talk. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't have your best interest at heart. <laughs> anyway, uh, so Joe Madden doing this uh, feels like it somewhat validates us. And Tanner Roark doing his part, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Madden doing his part seems fine, although it seems a little extreme. I have a hard, I haven't looked at the tango chart, but I have a hard time believing that Jake Arietta should be intentionally walking Bryce Harper or pit, even just pitching around and walking him. Yeah, that uh, so was regularly. what Bill concluded based on the chart. Of course, the chart was a while ago and the run environment was different. I don't know whether that changes anything, but based on the recommendations of when to walk bonds, it didn't seem like this was justified most of the time. And as to whether it's good or bad for the game or whether 
it's something that needs to be fixed. I, this was something that was talked about a lot when Barry Bonds was batting, and I don't think it does need to be fixed. I, I think that the walk is a strong enough penalty that it's actually pretty hard to walk somebody and have it be good for yourself. And even with Bonds, I, I, when, you know, when I've looked deep into Barry Bonds' intentional walks, I very rarely find walks that I think, yep, that was a, that was a good idea. I mean, you know, there's, you have the occasional, you know, runner on third and whatever. The, the situation really is strongly in favor of the walk and, and that's going to maybe be the case no matter who's up to bat. But the way that Bonds or the way that Harper gets walked where it's, you know, it becomes something close to automatic, it's just, you know, you're, you're, you're basically taking the hit. You're making a choice. It's a rational choice. It's not like, to me, it's not like the uh, intentional fouling problem in the NBA uh, where it's the math is just too easy. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't really have a problem with it. I mean, it's not good baseball, and it's very rarely an issue for the sport. But I don't think that the penalty is, is disproportionately low for the, uh, for the strategy. Uh-huh. Yeah. And we went through something with Chavez where our pitchers didn't want to do that. Our pitchers didn't really want to walk him because they all thought they could get him out. And well, he they didn't, didn't warn us out. He they had, didn't want to pitch around him. I think they were happy yeah. to intentionally walk him. Maybe, yeah. They were well, very they, bad at pitching around him. Yes, right. And they seemed to think they could challenge him or they could find the right pitch or they could find the right location. And we sort of were guilty of that too. We were dissecting the stats and looking at our numbers on him and trying to find his weakness. And, you know, he didn't do that well against this pitch type in this location. And so we were all trying to find reasons to pitch to him. And we probably shouldn't have pitched to him because in that league, he was just so much better than everyone else. And he had done so much damage against us. In the majors, I don't know if it makes as much sense, really. I'll be curious to see if it catches on. I mean, if the Cubs do it, if Joe Madden does it, the most respected manager on the best team in baseball starts pitching to someone a certain way that might at least make other teams take notice. But I don't know if there would be a way to to justify it statistically, unless you think that Zimmerman is just so compromised at this point that he's not the guy that the projections would say that he is. Do you think that's the case? Certainly could be. He's had his issues. I don't know anything about him that anyone else doesn't know. Mm -hmm. While we're on the topic of the Cubs, your boss tweeted Sunday that the the official 538 projections now have the Cubs winning 107 games this year, Uh (laughs) uh, which you can laugh at because you uh, hate the hubris of data journalism and you find that to be an absurd claim that needs to be walked fully back. Or you can laugh because... The Cubs are just amazing, (laughs) and all you can do is laugh. That was why I was laughing. Yeah, me too. So uh, you have nothing to do with those projections. You put none of your own labor into uh, that uh, system of projecting. But 107, how's it sound? It's not crazy because they were a, you know, coming into the season, it, it wasn't crazy to see them as a 97, 98 win team, something like that. And they have started off at the pace of a, what, 130 win team or something like that for, you know, uh, well over a month. So even if they just continue to play like, a, I mean, wh- what if they play, what was the, say, a preseason expected winning percentage for them? Let's say, you know, they were projected to win uh, 97 games or something. Uh-huh. So that's uh, 
that's a 599 winning percentage. So how many games do they have left? 132. 132. So if they play at that original pace, they will win 79 more games. And they have, what, 24 wins right now? Yeah. So that's 103. Yeah. And I think there's... they have to win. I think they have to be a hundred and one win team from here on out uh-huh. and to, to make it work. If we thought they were a 97, 98 win team and we've seen them play like a 130 win team for a month plus, it's not unreasonable to adjust your expectations up slightly. And yeah. that's really all you have to do to get them to 107. Although if you thought they were a 97 win team, that was with Kyle Schwarber. And True. you probably would think they were a 94, 95 win team without him. Maybe, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, it seems fine to me. I mean, I'd, I'd easily put 100 on them. And if, oh, sure. And so if they're a 100-win team, then that gets them to 106 Yeah. at this pace. I mean, it, you know, just, just with what they've already done. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a 107-win team might be a reasonable projection. I can continue to work for 538 and hold my head high. If, let's say the Cubs win 117 games this year... And like 117, like a literal 117. <laughs> and uh, so they're the greatest team in history, regular season team in history, or at least in the 162 game era. And then they go into the postseason and whatever, they lose a short series because mm-hmm. it happens. Do, would you expect the offseason to be free agents just flooding in at reduced prices <laughs> just to be there when Chicago wins? I mean, it, would this be, would we see a real kind of almost player collusion situation where everybody wants to to be on the team that is going to end that drought and is just so obviously going to do it well given that we already sort of saw it last offseason or at least it seemed that way with Hayward and Zobrist and others it seemed as if the Cubs had an easier time recruiting because of their success and their core and Theo and I don't know what else so coming off the best season ever I, I would imagine that would uh be a beacon to anyone who wants to win? Um, I saw an ad for RBI Baseball, uh-huh. a video game. Yeah. And it talked about how they have upgraded with all, uh, with new, with all, well, I don't know exactly the words, but the, the, the keywords are new fielding moves. <laughs> Do you have a problem with fielding moves being described, being used to describe baseball actions? I've always really liked football move. As uh-huh. a saying, so I'm actually kind of happy if we're porting that to baseball. Okay. Baseball move. Baseball move would be like grabbing your jock or something, probably. But I still like the term. Okay. All right. Good. Then I won't uh, be mad at that. Uh-huh. And uh, I think finally, unless you have more banter after this, nope. Uh, Rich Hill pitched. Oh, of course. Okay. This the, I think this is the first time that Rich Hill has pitched that I am not going to move my number at all. Okay. I don't know if that's because we he he's settling down. Like a three. 39 pitcher this time 339 yeah he went five and two-thirds allowed one run struck out five walked three i didn't really like this outing that much he started out really good and then he kind of lost in the middle innings but only allowed one run two hits got 13 swinging strikes and it was uh it was look it, it probably is slightly better than a three and 39 pitcher but not enough for me to move mm-hmm. so first i think this is the first time that he hasn't yeah, it's the first time he has surprised us by not surprising us. All right, I that's my whole list of banters. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think that it's time for the good wife. <laughs> okay, all right. Hashtag good wife farewell segment. And if you want to hear us talk about trout, we'll probably talk about that tomorrow. Yeah, we definitely will. Okay.
All right, uh, so Good Wife, series <laughs> finale. Spoilers. Yes, spoilers. All right, so I don't know where to, where you want to start. Uh, I guess we might as well start with the that's you know just we might as well start at the end. Okay. Unhappy ending. Yeah, very complex and so, unresolved ending. And just knowing just just knowing that, I mean that that really is the whole series. Is it going to end happy or is it not going to end happy? And it ended unhappy. And this was not an unhappy show. This was largely a show about Alicia succeeding and things eventually working out and her winning a lot of cases. And the, you know, probably the worst day of the series was the first day uh, until the last day. Mm -hmm. Um, And so were you surprised that it ended? the last day, of course, mirrored the first day very closely as they seem to be, uh, they seem to really like the, the things coming full circle structure of the show. So there was a Peter press conference and there was a slap. I don't, look, you don't have to give plot details. If people haven't seen it, they're not listening. <laughs> right. So I think the show always kind of wanted to differentiate itself from the standard network show. And it usually did in very positive ways. And so I wonder if the desire to avoid the pat happy ending contributed to this just wanting to stand out from your your typical network show where everything's gets resolved and and everyone's happy or there's tragedy it wasn't really you know no one died there wasn't any huge shocker it was just sort of a sad ending it was sad and there was not much resolution it was the rare show where the first thing i did after watching the series finale was watch a six-minute video on cbs.com called The Show's Creators Explain the Final Episode. Oh. Because I wanted to see how they would explain the final episode because I wasn't sure how to explain it myself. So... Well, it wasn't just that... I mean, it's not just that a bad thing happened to her, though. Like, we saw her... her own. I mean, her own actions caused this. She... Yes. Look, the, the thing about this show is that, okay, it's called The Good Wife, and for seven seasons, you've sort of taken that I, I at least have taken that title to be kind of, you know, arch and ironic. Uh-huh. Like she's not she she's the good wife because that's how the public viewed her because she was standing up there at the press conference in the first episode. But then, of course, she hasn't really been married to Peter for a very long time. She the whole show is about her finding her own her own story to tell. And yet, as it came to the end, she was giving her husband too much. She was she was too devoted to her husband and. And that's what cost her her business relationships. That's what cost her her personal relationship with Jason. And in fact, she ended up being that very thing that you completely forgot about. Like you just lost sight of the fact that she's supposed to even be the good wife mm-hmm. because she hadn't been for so long. And then in, in the end, she came back into that role. And in doing so, she hurt people close to her and ruined all of these things that for seven seasons she had been building up toward and uh and ended up with nothing yes and ended up with nothing except for this like kind of gross resolution that she was going to be stronger than all the people she had hurt mhm at least that's how i read the facial expression the the uh you know composing herself facial expression right at the end i assume we're supposed to make the connection that she has become more like peter or she has adopted his traits or the pursuit of power and the high paying job and the political office that might be in her future and all of that has tainted her in some way over the course of the series arc 
And she's a less likable character, I suppose, than she was at the start of the series, although she is more powerful and more competent in certain ways. So I sort of, I guess I admire the ending. I always sort of admire it when a series resists the neat ending. I wouldn't have minded uh, a neat ending. I wouldn't have minded her walking off into the sunset with Jason, but I sort of respect the choice, I guess I could say, as as I've respected many of the show's choices over the course of its hundreds of episodes. I mean, the the last season was sort of a mess. There wasn't really a clear conflict. It was all sort of an internal, will Alicia make the same mistake she made with Will? Again, that was kind of, the, will she stay with Peter? Will Peter go to prison again? Which I don't, no one really cares, I don't think, about Peter going to prison. And the case was very difficult to follow and it kind of came out of nowhere and most of its details were pretty opaque. So I wasn't all that invested in the outcome of, of that court case. But after seven seasons, when you've already played the card where the beloved character dies and you've already had another beloved character leave the show and you've played musical chairs with your law firms several times, it kind of gets to the point where you're stringing it along. And I was happy for it to be strung along because I enjoyed it week to week, even when it did seem a little aimless and purposeless. But I respect the choice. Do you have any idea whether Peter was guilty? And do you <laughs> do you think the fact that I'm guessing the answer is no, do you think that was intentional and slash a, a strength or a flaw of that storyline? I mean... I assume just because it's Peter, I lean toward he was guilty just because he has a history of doing things and having a compromised moral compass. So I assume we're supposed to think he was guilty, but it also doesn't seem to matter. Maybe it's just the message is that when you are in this position of power, or you're in political office, you get mired in these things. And whether you're actually trying to do them or not, you just it gets into this murky territory where everyone looks bad maybe that is supposed to be the takeaway but no i don't i don't think i have any clear idea of whether he was guilty or not all right so my um the most my most ambiguous feelings about the finale and really the final season and so maybe you can talk me through it is that you remember when jason was sort of new and there were those people, like a bunch of people were telling Alicia that he was a, like, like a legitimate sociopath. And yeah. He's just a bad dude. Loose cannon, yeah. And like, yeah, I think they actually said, no, he's literally a sociopath. Like, uh -huh. he stay, don't go anywhere near him. And that was to me this, like, horribly unfired Chekhov's gun the entire time. Like, I just yeah. kept waiting for that to circle around and be the storyline. And, you know, the problem with network TV is that they're not generally writing. I mean, there's a lot of moving factors and s casting is a total pain. You, you don't know who's going to be available for how long. And so you really sometimes see what you think is a bad storyline or bad writing is really just the practicalities of of running a network television show for 24 episodes a season and so it's possible that i i guess i always just sort of assume that they were doing so little with that i would give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that they intended jason to be a much smaller character maybe maybe he was going to be a bad guy uh but then he you know he tested well and they got good feedback and he, the message boards liked him and so they ended up kind of doing a, an audible on him 
-hmm. But I was still kind of to the end holding out hope that that gun was going to fire. And so when we are to believe that, you know, he's gone, right? That Alicia will never be close to him again, right? It's obviously it's ambiguous. I'm sure. But, I think but the, not. It's not. I don't. That, not that ambiguous, right? The Kings in their six-minute video on CBS.com. I I think they implied that they thought she would go after him and that that might work out. But oh. the the show itself did not give me that impression. I mean, okay, it seemed so, as if he was gone. So did hmm. huh? Well, so do you think I'm not? Even if he is gone. Is it because Alicia ruined it or am I, can I take some solace in him abandoning her? Was that the payoff to that ex-colleague telling Alicia that he's a horrible person? Well, he, I don't know if he showed himself to be horrible, but he showed himself to be a little bit of a, a lightweight or, or you yeah, know, but that's insubstantial not in a interpersonal sense. I mean, it was he... 12 episodes of him being the world's greatest guy. Yeah. <laughs> like super competent, super romantic, super yeah. calm, super patient, super forgiving, super everything awesome. Mm-hmm. Like, where's the sociopath? <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we really didn't see it. Never I, w- once. What were you hoping that the payoff would be? That he would reveal himself to be a, a sociopath and Alicia would have the strength to walk away or what? What would the, the outcome I- be? I honestly can't even remember. I had a, I had like a, I, I thought I knew where it was going. Uh-huh. Uh, and it, uh, I forget though. Uh-huh. Well, those seven seasons really increased my respect for the office of investigator at, at a law firm. I don't yeah. know whether real investigators are as confident as Kalinda and Jason and, and even Robin had her moments. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> but uh, if they're anywhere near as good as the TV versions, then I salute people who do that as their job. All right. And my last thing, my, my, my big problem with the finale, not a big problem, but the thing that I will remember five years from now is, so when she's having all these imaginary conversations with Will, Mm-hmm. which I like. I always like that as a plot device. I liked it today, too. It was good. But then she hugs him. And <laughs> I just don't think you can imagine a hug. I think that's what makes a hug a hug, is that it is real. It can only be real. I I would challenge... I think you can imagine almost any any interaction with any person, but I challenge anybody to convincingly imagine a hug. And I don't think you can do it. I think when you imagine a hug, it only makes you feel emptier. You can cannot you do it. a kiss? Because yeah, there was a, an imagined uh, kiss yeah, too. Yeah, maybe not a maybe not a kiss, but as uh, many a uh, as many a ten year old uh, who's worried about, or you know, fourteen year old or whatever who's worried about his or her undefined kissing technique has has known. You could always you know kiss your thumb and forefinger if you really <laughs> you want to, but you cannot hug. And uh, a hug is so satisfying because it's real. And I don't like that she imagined a hug and it seemed to mean something. Mm-hmm. I was ambivalent about Will's return. It was nice to see him in a nostalgic sense, but I, I didn't need him to be back. It felt a little, like, obligatory. It's the last episode, so we have to bring back beloved character. Didn't bring back Kalinda. No, well, she is perhaps not beloved by everyone who is why, on the show. How can, why wouldn't, but how do, you, how do you resolve things without Will? Well, they didn't resolve anything with him. Hmm. Well, Will, Will became, Will was her spiritual guide. To yeah. find it, to to deciding what she wanted. True, true. Although she didn't get what she wanted. No, because she was she had lost herself. Mm-hmm. 
I don't well, know. I'm glad there was one last delightful judge scene. That's probably... Are you talking about the one with uh, Boyce? Yes, Cuesta, Judge Cuesta and the, the guest who was testifying. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably been always one of my favorite things about The Good Wife. Just sort of uh, not letting the the reverence for that office getting in the way of presenting those people as humans. Often very funny portrayals. Will you be watching Brain Dead? Sure. You will? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I will. I don't have any particular expectations for it, but... No. I don't know. It doesn't seem like the greatest premise for a show. I don't know I, what the premise is. What is the premise? The premise is that it uh, follows a young staffer on the Hill who I think gets to Congress and finds out that aliens are taking over the government, but it's a, a dark comedy. Wait, re- is it really <laughs> aliens are? Yes, actual aliens. You're out now. <laughs> but I'll, I'll give it a shot. I like to see the, the king's try an actual comedy because The Good Wife was often one of the best comedies on TV, even though you wouldn't really have classified it as such. Uh All right. All right. So seven seasons in the can. Thank you, Good Wife, and goodbye. We need another podcast show to refer to now and then. You're very welcome to join me on the elementary (laughs) train. (laughs) Still going, huh? Yeah, love it. What what season is it these days? Maybe fifth. Jeez. Fourth. (laughs) I, I don't know. Wow. Still just as good as ever? You know, Good Wife made it tricky because I, I like to have exactly one network show in my life. Yeah. and I have the uh, last ship now in my life. Yeah. and That's so my then network Good, show. Good Wife came along and was a network show that uh, made me feel – it made me feel guilty for watching Elementary, even though I was already watching Elementary. Like uh-huh. now I just feel like it's a huge waste of my time to watch Elementary. Because but... <laughs> Elementary sometimes looks like <laughs> – the parody show that Good Wife would have on the TV? <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> no, 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 no. Your show, your that. I Last think, ship, yeah, definitely. <laughs> no, I'm thinking of the one that you liked that I hated. I think it was on AMC that you you wrote for Grantland about how many dead people there were in it. Oh, Longmire. That's what I think. Now of, on Netflix. Yeah, as the show that. Oh, <laughs> that's a bad show. <laughs> it's uh, consistently pleasant. Uh that's my rave review all right so hope you enjoyed the bonus tv segment all right so now i will play us off with the standard ending to the episode as if anyone is still listening you can support the podcast on patreon at patreon.com slash effectively wild today's five thank yous to people who have done that go to matt tufnell gregory zagorski william martin joel watts and ken copen you may have heard that sam and i have a book out It's called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. We have three book events coming up this week. One on Wednesday in Washington, D.C., one in New York City on Thursday, and another one on Thursday in San Francisco, California. Sam and I will be splitting up to cover all of these events. You can find all the details for those on the book's website at theonlyruleisithastowork.com. You can also find photos and videos and interviews and reviews and everything else. Tons of bonus content surrounding the book on that site. We thank you very much for the positive feedback and the compliments and the reviews. If you have read the book and would like to tell the world about it, we'd love it if you'd leave us a review at Goodreads and Amazon and help us entice other people who might not be listeners to the podcast. You can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and you can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. You can get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription to the Play Index by going to baseballreference.com and using the coupon code BP. 
And you can email us at podcast at baseballperspectus.com or by messaging us through Patreon. We will be back tomorrow with the promised trout talk. Thank you.